we're in the Sermon on the Mount. That's that Matthew 5 text. But we're going to first of all read Matthew 19, 3 through 9. And you'll see, actually, what do you have next? Oh, okay. I thought it was later in the chapter. This is correct. Um, So this is good. We'll start at verse 3 in Matthew 19. And then uh, we'll transition back to the Sermon on the Mount. This is God's holy and infallible word. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, and this is Jesus, that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female and said, For this reason, A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And then back to the Sermon on the Mount. And basically, what we get here is the tail end of that conversation with the Pharisees. But I wanted us to see what led up to Jesus saying these verses, the background. And we're going to get into that in the sermon a bit. Uh, Matthew 5:31. it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. That's God's holy and infallible word for us today, friends. So we move from talking about Uh, lust and adultery last week to divorce today. Not topics that are at the top of most pastors' lists to preach. And that's one of the reasons why we often move together verse by verse through books of the Bible. So as pastors, we can't just stick to topics that we happen to like. Divorce is among the limited number of topics Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount. And so he must think it's important. And I think most of us realize this is an important topic. Marriage seems to have hit hard times. You know, less people are getting married than ever before. In 1960, one in ten people over the age of 25, were not married. As of a few years ago, one in five people over the age of 25 were not married. Not everyone is convinced that marriage is such a great thing, maybe, or at least there seems to be some hesitation to enter into it. Uh, We know that there's cynicism about marriage out there and Some of those feelings about marriage are no doubt because of how often we see broken marriages. It's enough 
to give you pause about marriage. The director of family studies at Focus on the Family wrote an interesting article about the divorce rate very recently. He finds there that it's actually stabilized a bit in recent years. That's good. In fact, it was at a 40-year low in 2009. But before we get too excited about that, we have to think about 2009, think about 2008, uh, the recession, and realize it was likely for economic reasons that it was at a 40-year low because divorce is, of course, extremely expensive. The rate rose again a bit in the several years following 2009. They say, and you probably heard this statistic, 40 to 50% of marriages end in divorce. There are a lot of factors that go into the likelihood of divorce, so that's, definite, that's not the same thing as saying, well, if you get married, you basically got a 50-50 shot that your marriage will last. That's, that's not what's going on. For example, according to this article, if you marry very young, Statistically speaking, you're more likely to get divorced. We're talking late teens, early 20s. If you live together with someone first, you are 50 to 80% more likely to get divorced if you get married later. And if you have your first child before getting married, you're also more likely to get divorced. Interesting stuff. Maybe... Just maybe God's way is best, huh? Sex before marriage, living together before you're married doesn't tend to work because it goes against God's design for us. If your parents never divorced, you're less likely to get divorced. If both partners enter marriage with a strong belief that marriage is for life, they are less likely to get divorced. If you each have a strong faith life, you're less likely to get divorced. But if you have a nominal faith, you're more likely to get divorced. A nominal faith, that, that's someone who is, who is a Christian by name, but you're not really active as a Christian. You show up sometimes on Sundays. The faith doesn't make a big difference for your life daily. Those with an active faith, though, are very much less likely to get divorced. For some reason, and I don't quite know, get what's behind this statistic, if one partner smokes and the other one doesn't, there's a greater likelihood to divorce. If both partners smoke, you're twice as likely to divorce. I don't know what to make of that one. People on their second and third marriages, and this one shouldn't be much of a surprise, are much more likely to divorce again. 73% of third marriages result in divorce. So extra practice doesn't make perfect in the realm of marriage, apparently. So, you know, we can talk about numbers and statistics, and I believe this was a reliable source from family and the focus here, but, you know... We all know divorce isn't about numbers and statistics. Divorce is about people. It's about people. And divorce is one of the most painful things a person could ever experience. Emotionally, psychologically, it's comparable to experiencing a death. In fact, a lot of people say it's, it's more difficult than if your spouse dies. You can believe that. And of course, the hurt, the pain, 
goes far beyond the couple. So what do we do with all that? What do we do with this tough topic? It seems to me like in all our living, we need to go to the Word of God. We need to seek to understand it. We need to humble ourselves before it. And having understood it, we seek to obey it. And for this, like all aspects of our broken lives in this world, we need God's grace. And you know, we certainly find it when we go to Scripture. We find God's truth. We find His grace, first of all, this morning, in how Jesus affirms God's design for marriage. And we see that in this conversation Jesus has with the Pharisees in Matthew 19. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? You notice, Jesus doesn't start talking about divorce. Jesus starts talking about marriage. And he brings up God's original gracious design for marriage. And That has to be our starting point, too, it seems to me, for any talk about divorce. We read here that God's design includes one man and one woman. Think that speaks to today at all, huh? What do we think about that topic in our world and in our culture? What seems right to us? Well, wrong questions. The creator of marriage should be able to define it. The creator of male and female should be able to define these things. God's word is our authority, as Jesus himself affirmed a number of verses ago, earlier in chapter 5. Every word, every letter of that word we submit to. Jesus then talks about a man leaving his father and mother and being united to his wife, and the two becoming one flesh. And that tells us something about the intimacy of marriage. The two become one. It's a mystery. As close as our children are to us, sorry girls, as close as they are to us, as dear as they are, we are not one flesh with them. That husband and wife relationship, that's the deepest human relationship possible. And so, of course, it's the one that demands our deepest devotion. We read, too, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And that speaks to the permanence of marriage. It's why we say, till death do us part. This one flesh, once it's become one, is not to be separated. So that's God's design. Anything less than that is not God's way. That there is departure from God's design is sad, But it's certainly no surprise to us as believers because we know about sin and we know about brokenness in people's hearts. We know about it in our own heart and we see it in this world. So it's clear what Jesus is saying. You want to talk about when divorce is okay? Well, really, it's never okay. God's gracious design is is our default. It's our foundation. Marriage is a lifelong commitment. It's underwritten by God. We don't tamper with that. Bottom line, people shouldn't consider divorce. People shouldn't be entertaining it as a possibility. Believers say that God hates divorce. It's a very harsh thing to say, but you know what? That's what God says. It's in Malachi 2.16. Then, 
Jesus lays out that gracious sign. The Pharisees bring up in verse 7 of, of chapter 19 the reality, the bottom line reality of divorce in Moses' day. And divorce happened in the community of faith in Jesus' day too. So that's what they're talking about. So what about that? What about that? Jesus responds by bringing up the hardness of people's hearts, recognizing that in a fallen world, this type of brokenness in marriage happens. But the thing is that in Moses' day and in Jesus' day, things there had gotten out of control. It was like today in that there, were, there was a lot of divorce going on. Jesus is saying, this isn't right. Get back to God's design. Take marriage very seriously. Don't give up on it lightly and so casually. The reference to Moses' day goes back to Deuteronomy 24 in the first few verses there. In the ancient world, women were treated like property. And that's how it was in basically all cultures then. God was teaching his people a different way, of course, but that took time. We read in Deuteronomy, if the wife becomes displeasing to the husband, give her a certificate of divorce. And so that certif- that's what was going on, but that certificate was part of God's law there as a way for God's people to give protection to the woman who was being treated like property and as a way for men to take their marriage more seriously instead of just going in and out of marriages as they please. Now, the Pharisees twisted what was going on when they said to Jesus, you remember when Moses commanded divorce, but that wasn't true. Did you notice that difference? Jesus corrects them and he says, no, Moses didn't command it. Moses permitted it. Going forward from that time in the Old Testament, different schools of rabbis among the Jewish people interpreted differently when God might permit a divorce. And as you might expect with human nature, the more liberal, looser interpretation is what people over time gravitated towards until... uh, In Jesus' day, divorce happened for almost any reason. A a woman in Jesus' day among God's people there could be divorced for uh, being a bad cook. If If a husband didn't find her attractive anymore, if he fell in love with someone else, if he just plain lost interest. And here's the thing. In Jesus' day, this was all permitted as long as you provided a divorce certificate. Then, according to the Pharisees, and again, these were the leaders of the church in Jesus' day, the leaders of God's people, gone very far astray, of course, but according to the Pharisees, you could do a divorce for almost any reason as long as you provided that divorce certificate. And they, they, they went back to Deuteronomy 24, but they were twisting it. They, they were totally missing God's design in their selfishness, in their sin. And like always, we saw this a few times, right? The Pharisees were focusing on the externals. 
that certificate. They twisted things to make God's will and law about divorce about a paper. They were losing the sanctity and the permanence of marriage. And and so Jesus cuts through all this by upholding marriage and drastically limiting divorce. He says, if you divorce your wife, and remember, divorce your wife, this was all initiated by the men in that day because women had no rights to speak of, but it applies to the husband or wife. If there's a situation where divorce happens, then You've committed adultery, he says. You've broken the law, certificate or not. Why? Well, it's because that one flesh that God put together has been broken. The exception to that, we read, is marital unfaithfulness. This is a somewhat broad term. People that study this closely notice that when Jesus talks about this in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and in the Gospel of Luke on divorce, he doesn't mention that exception. But that can't mean Matthew is wrong. We believe God's word is reliable in every part. A reason for leaving the exception out would be that for Mark and Luke's audience, that exception was well known, and it was obvious. Now, what exactly is this? Why is this an exception? Well, if you think about it, if a spouse has been unfaithful, well, the marriage bond has been broken. The spouse, in effect, has chosen the path of divorce already. But even in unfaithfulness, God's word doesn't command divorce. It's permitted because the one flesh bond has been broken, but by God's grace, hopefully, ideally, there could even in unfaithfulness yet be healing. Just as an aside, uh, and we're not getting into this this morning, we don't have time, and um, besides this unfaithfulness, the Bible talks about another exception in 1 Corinthians 7, and most Christians also see one in, in 1 Timothy 5.8 and other passages that in the history of the church has been called desertion. To abandon a spouse is a type of unfaithfulness. So the details of a broken marriage are usually, if not always, very complicated. And of course, None of us really knows what's going on in someone's marriage behind closed doors. But unlike what the religious leaders in Jesus' day said, nowhere in any situation does the Bible command divorce. Nowhere. The ideal is when there's brokenness for there to be humility, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. Biblical divorce is kind of a weird term. I'm not even sure it's a correct term, but in biblically permitted divorces, one or both spouses have broken the marriage bond, and though both should try their very best to reconcile and stay married, if that proves impossible, then, very sadly, divorce happens. We're talking about issues that are are very difficult, very complex, 
And you know, not all Christians agree 100% on all of this even and how it works. I'm sharing what I see in Scripture and what other Reformed thinkers and pastors I respect see and have said and have taught uh, recently and even back to uh, the, the Reformation days is what I've been looking at. What anyone would agree on is this. If there's anywhere God's grace is needed in our lives today, it's in the area of marriage and divorce. There are a lot of decisions we've made that we shouldn't have. And any number of those decisions in life, we can't go back and undo. All you can do is acknowledge any sin on your part before God and move forward in His grace. Satan, the evil one, wants to continue to use those bad decisions against us. He tells you that you've messed up so badly, you're beyond the realm of God's forgiveness. But that's a lie. It's not true. We're never beyond God's forgiveness. None of us. That never provides excuse for sin. If anybody approaches a sin by saying, well, I can do this sin, I can do wrong, and then ask God for forgiveness later, well then, I'm not so sure a true believer would do that. I'm not sure a Christian would ever even do that. But we've all made mistakes, sometimes terrible ones, and sometimes they don't become clear to us till maybe years later in our life. Well, then we got to take it before the Lord and ask for His grace. Reverend Alistair Begg, when he talks about divorce, takes us to earlier in this gospel we're in. He takes us to Matthew's genealogy. That's the family line of Jesus. And you know, if you know anything about it, there are some shady characters in that genealogy. And he says, no doubt God gave that to us to say, look at those names. Say, can you believe what she did? Can you believe what he did? And yet, God's word shows us those sinners are part of Jesus' family. We find that God's grace is so marvelous, so amazing, that he sweeps into his unfolding plan for our lives, even our sin and rebellion. That's the sovereignty of our God. And so this topic of marriage and divorce takes us where we need to be, it seems to me, amazed at the grace of God that redeems our life from the pit. He does not deal with us as our sins deserve. Anyone who is blessed with a marriage that is not broken needs to ask, why are we not part of the statistics? Now, there are things that we can all do to work on our marriage, for sure, but in the end, none of us can say, my marriage is good and whole because I've been perfect. I've been 100% faithful in my thoughts, in my words, in my deeds. That's not true for any of us. It's only by the grace of God 
that our marriages can last. Psalm 73 says this, and, and think about it in terms of marriage. As for me, my foot had almost slipped. My steps had nearly stumbled. But I am continually with you. You hold me by your right hand. And knowing that will help us when we see someone whose marriage is broken. It will save us from being the Pharisee who who acts like we're okay because of our works and because of who we are and, and how we lived and what we've done. Friends, we must never, ever step back at all from the clarity of God's word about his design and the permanence of marriage. But this perspective will allow us to say, there but for the grace of God go I. The truth of God's word reveals our shortcomings compared to his standard, but thankfully we can go forward in grace because of the finished work of Christ, which is paid for the sins of all who turn to him in their need. I want to conclude with uh, just three practical points for us. Saved by grace, in the context of God's grace, he calls us to live obediently. Three thoughts. Two are from Paul in his letters. One is from Matthew. Now, I can't say, do these three things and your marriage will be divorce-proof because, one, we mess up. Two, a marriage involves two people committed and working on it. And so, if just one is not working on that marriage, a marriage can get broken. And, and that's what makes marriage and marriage counseling the toughest of all to work on. I think any pastor will tell you that. The toughest of any counseling. It's more difficult than someone who's struggling with an addiction. Because if that person wants help, it's just that person. But with the marriage counseling, it's, it's two people. It's not just one person working on their junk but two, and not always two, will, both will want to work on it. But, but these points, these three points, I think will, by grace, help us strengthen our marriage. I'm really sure of it. But first, just a word on being single. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says something really interesting about that. Sometimes we act in our culture or just in our own minds that being single is a lesser thing than being married. But Paul doesn't treat it like that. Paul treats being single as a higher calling than marriage. Check out 1 Corinthians 7 sometimes. A single person is more free to serve the kingdom, in a sense, because he or she is not weighed down with all the obligations and duties of marriage. Now, when God leads you to that right person, you want to be married, and it's great, and it's worth it, of course, but, but Paul treats being single as a higher calling, and so if you're single, I hope this morning you hear God's word on that. If you want to be married, this shouldn't hold you back. Paul also says, if you want to be married, it's better that you are, but in the meantime, serve God faithfully. We have to trust that where things are at in our life are what is best for us. And we trust that God knows what's best for us. He loves us so much. In terms of marriage, three points. First, marry in the Lord. Marry in 
the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6.14 uses the language of being unequally yoked to tell a believer not to marry an unbeliever. The divorce statistics show that when a couple shares their Christian faith, they are much less likely to get divorced. The statistics also said, of course, that a nominal faith makes a divorce chance to go up. So young people, men and women of any age, you want a marriage partner who is active in their faith and strong in their commitment to Christ. Remember last week uh, we talked about the, the traits that men and women look for in a partner. We can compare 1939 to 2008. Number one trait for us in the church should be love's Jesus. Number one trait. That's what you're looking for. Much more important than the statistics. This is God's will for us. If we've done our own thing on this very clear instruction, thankfully even there, God's grace comes to us. We can be forgiven, but we should be clear from God's word that it's a mistake to be unequally yoked. So first, marry in the Lord. Second, live in the Lord in your marriage. Follow God's will for holy living in everything. Everything includes how you live with your spouse in marriage. We can't leave them out. The prelude to the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes. We studied them. Read those Beatitudes. Are you applying them to your marriage? Do it deliberately and just see how your marriage might grow. Chrysostom was a preacher in the early church, and and he says, I'm going to quote it, For he that is meek and a peacemaker and poor in spirit and merciful, how shall he cast out his wife? He that reconciles with others, how shall he be at variance with her that is his own? And, And so if you think about that, when both husband and wife are merciful, peacemakers, meek, pure in heart, seeking God's will for the blessed life together. That's a recipe for success. Divorce would never cross the minds of two people focused on living the Beatitudes in marriage. Finally, third practical point, husbands lead the way. You can call me old-fashioned if you want, but I firmly believe in male headship. It's very clear in Ephesians 5.23, the husband is the head of the wife. That doesn't mean husbands are more important than the wives. It doesn't mean he's the big boss or the dictator. Terrible when that happens. It doesn't mean you're not partners. It means the husband is called to lead the way in the home and in the marriage. Especially, he's called to lead the way spiritually. And so, guys... We lead the way in this, in being in worship, in giving, in family devotions, in servant leadership. I really think in most cases, if men are lovingly leading the way, our wives will follow. I know our marriages will be better. I know our churches will be stronger, and our witness, even in the world, will be more powerful. So girls and women... That's the type of man you want who's going to lead the way. Help him and support him in every way you can. It's a big job. It's a heavy job. We need a lot of grace, God's grace and yours too. 
So, heavy stuff this morning. Heavy stuff. God's word is clear, friends, on marriage and what God thinks about divorce. And this is tough for all of us. Thank Jesus for his marvelous grace. We've made mistakes, sometimes very big ones that have lifelong implications, but God's grace is greater than our sin. And because of that, we can grow in grace. From here forward, following God's design for blessing in every area of our lives. Amen.